Today's episode is with Josie and Emily Kins. Josie is a psychedelic researcher with leading expertise in the formal documentation and classification of altered states of consciousness, as well as an influential and prominent researcher, writer, community leader, YouTuber, and content creator within online psychedelic culture. Emily falls in the same vein as Josie's colleague, co-writer, and editor. They both currently work with MindState Design Labs, a psychedelic drug development company designing altered states of consciousness for mental health therapeutics. Super stoked I was able to get the chance to talk with them both when I was in Colorado. They were gracious enough to offer their time for an interview, and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, as the study of consciousness is an immense interest of mine. Links to all of their info, as well as their incredibly fascinating YouTube channel, are in the show notes, as well as the video version of this podcast up on YouTube, and links to my Discord are in there as well. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you find it as interesting of a conversation as I have. My name is Evan Liel. I've been traveling for the past couple years, just talking to people. And that's really it. This is just my attempt at capturing the genuine conversations I have along the way, discovering the essence of what it means to pursue a life well-lived with the contemplation of love, death, meaning, and existence. Sweet, sweet. So, Emily and Josie? Yes. Awesome. Thanks for being on. Um, no so problem. would you guys be able to kind of explain a little bit uh, what you guys do exactly? Um, uh, shall I go first or do you want to go first? It's really either way. I can, I can either way. Uh, okay. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Yeah. Um, sure. So I, I am a psychedelic researcher of sorts. I specialize in formal classification and documentation of altered states of consciousness, um, uh, both as a professional internet person and then also as a project manager for a biotech research company. I originally founded a project when I was, I guess, 17, I'm about to turn 30, called the Subjective Effect Index, which essentially breaks down altered states of consciousness, uh, such as the psychedelic experience, into individual subjective effect labels with formalized descriptions, leveling systems, image and video replications. Uh, so, over I think 250 different articles. It's a project that I focused on for better part of a decade and then eventually started doing it uh, professionally um, as a career. Awesome. And then what, what got you into that to begin with? Like what started your psychedelic uh, experience? So I discovered psychedelics when I was 17 and I'd always wanted to contribute something to science, I suppose, but I never did very well at school and didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Then when I discovered psychedelics, I was immediately obsessed with them. It became a lifelong passion, and I was listening to a lot of Terence McKenna lectures, and he said that we weren't going to understand the psychedelic experience unless we map it out. So I was then confused that nobody had done that yet, and uh, the more I looked into trying to find online resources that document and describe the subjective effects of psychedelics, the more I realized that they just didn't exist to the extent that I thought they should. So I realized that was something that needed to be done and set out to do it myself. Awesome. Cool, cool. And Emily, what, a, what would you describe your role as here? Um, so my role is uh, basically a Josie translator slash editor slash rewriter. Um, so, so Josie has a, uh, an innate and unusual ability to identify and categorize these, these effects. But um, when it comes to being able to articulate them more, more clearly to a wider audience, is that's something that I assist with. So I didn't actually start working with Josie until after we met in 2021. And then I only started becoming much more active in your work 
uh, probably around August. Yeah. Yeah. So before that, I was doing some some editing for uh, the YouTube channel or for articles. And um, after, at that point, I kind of realized that I didn't have time to do the the work that I was doing at the time, like the job that I was ha- that I was doing at the time and still be as involved as I wanted to be. So I uh, quit my job and started just working with Josie. And so that has been working on the YouTube channel and then also uh, working with her in the for the biotech company as well. OK, what's the biotech company you work for? Uh, so it's Mind State Design Labs. It is a uh, psychedelic startup that is ultimately trying to find ways to um, develop kind of bespoke therapies, um, psychedelics, like novel psychedelics that will be targeting specific parts of the brain for therapeutic effects. Okay, cool. Awesome. And then what what got you into psychedelics? Um, so I originally tried psychedelics when I was like 18. And I was really interested and wanted to do more, but I didn't really have opportunity to until after I met Josie in 2021. (laughs) So um, it was something that as soon as I had a taste for it, I or had a taste of it, I immediately wanted to to do it more. But uh, not like since meeting Josie, my world has really expanded with with all of that. Awesome. Super cool. Um, So before we get like uh, deep into like the the world of psychedelics, what you guys do, I want to kind of define some definitions here. Mm-hmm. What would you define psychedelics as? Uh, I can. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go, I guess. Yeah, go for it. Uh, I mean, I, I guess the term, the, the etymology is something along the lines of mind manifesting. I, I'm noticing that a lot of the field of psychedelic research is using the word psychedelic to Broadly, in my opinion, people are referring to uh, ketamine and dissociatives as psychedelics, but I think of them as serotonergic agonists, specifically the tryptamines, lysergamides, and phenethylamines, such as LSD, DMT, and mescaline. And I, I would not include other categories of hallucinogen within psychedelics, such as dissociatives, deliriants, and various atypicals, such as uh, salvia or muscimol. Okay. Uh, yeah. That seems like a very, like, um, I guess, analytical perspective of what psychedelics are. How would you describe it more from a, like a, an experience side? Uh, I guess I would say that uh, psychedelics are a class of substance that promotes more integrated connections within the brain temporarily. And so that's something that makes it different from dissociatives. They're both hallucinogens, but dissociatives kind of spread out the connections in the brain and result in hallucinations that way, whereas psychedelics create more connections and uh, both of them have therapeutic uses and seem to promote uh, promote uh, neural genesis. But um, yeah, I, I, I yeah. would I would agree with that. Uh, I think both on a neurological level and a subjective level, psychedelics seem to cause regions of the brain to communicate with each other when they previously were not. And I think that's largely responsible for a significant amount of the specific subjective effects that occur under the influence of psychedelics. Okay, cool. And then you said neurogenesis. What what uh, is neurogenesis? I think I used the wrong term, but basically promoting the like neurons to be be growing and connecting with each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, is, it is neurogenesis. Oh, okay, yeah, neurogenesis. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool, awesome. Um, and I should explain my interest here uh, for you guys. I so I am someone who became immensely interested in in consciousness um, as to like what it is, how we kind of operate within within the space of. Uh, the only thing we can know, which is like consciousness itself. Um, so um, naturally, psychedelics have been an immense um, uh, 
interest for me going down that, that path of reasoning. Um, and you know, it's not something that, um, is so it's, it's, it's so hard to define and so hard to like, uh, actually grasp just due to how enigmatic it actually is. And it's so, um, difficult to, to, to put a pin on. Um, so having these sort of conversations with, with people like you who know a lot more about it than I do, cause I've actually, I've never done a psychedelic. Um, Oh really? Yeah, no, I'm just, um, but I love, I love thinking about psychedelics and, and consciousness. Um, mainly I, 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 I have a, uh, like a mindfulness practice and, um, I tend to explore consciousness through that medium instead of, um, like, a through like a, uh, a drug or something of that, some other substance to take. Um, so, um, but, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't preclude me from having immense interest in, I, I smoke weed. Um, I smoke cannabis and that is, uh, something that I find deeply uh, spiritual and immensely, um, enlightening for myself just in terms of my own mental health and, and the way it kind of takes me into a different state of consciousness that I wouldn't be able to otherwise, um, without the, without that actual substance. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's kind of my perspective I'm coming from. Um, and I am also deeply interested in philosophy and, um, and what we're doing here just as anything doing here. Um, so, uh, uh, thank you for taking the time here. Um, of course. So you, as someone who like views psychedelics, you seem to you both seem to be viewing it strictly from a, or at least um, uh, greatly from a, an analytical perspective. Do you take uh, how much credence do you give to the the spiritual side of psychedelics? Um, uh, I, I I think that psychedelics are deeply spiritual. Mm-hmm. They, they, they cause me to have spiritual experiences, but I very much take the materialist stance. Um, I think that everything that happens under the influence of psychedelics is a result of changes in neurochemistry and the brain. And to me, that doesn't lessen the profundity or meaningfulness of definitely, it. Yeah. 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 I would say um, yeah, we definitely both come from a materialist perspective and we think that everything that people experience um, like as part of our minds and our consciousness in, in, in our brains, that our, our brains are capable of doing all of that, that it doesn't require some kind of uh, outside of the physical thing to, to create those experiences. And, um, when it comes to the spiritual, that definitely doesn't preclude that because I think that the way that our brains ultimately evolved is to have these experiences, to have experiences of, uh, deep like feelings and, uh, sort of like spirituality and, um, like emotions that are difficult to put into words, and like things that are not directly explainable in 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 our typical day to day terminology. Uh, what would you define uh, spirituality as? Um, I I think of spirituality as putting one putting one's life into a context that is part of a bigger picture or a larger context outside of one's own day to day life. Um, and I think of uh, religion as prepackaged spiritual ideologies, I suppose. And I think that humans have a sort of innate drive to come up with these spiritual frameworks to give their life more meaning and purpose. Okay. Awesome. Uh, I, th- I think of spirituality as being more about those feelings. Um, it's very well known that um, certain things can induce 
feelings of the divine or spirituality in particular. Live music tends to be a really strong example. Um, I'm someone who grew up in an intensely religious situation. I was I was religious homeschooled in the South. And I remember having these uh, very religious spiritual experiences at, in, in live music at the church. And then as soon as I w- started to do things outside of the church, I realized that those same experiences are something that are that, that we are kind of built to do. And they can be, uh, there's lots of things that can induce them and psychedelics are definitely one of them. And I think that it's a very important and good thing for our mental health to embrace some of the, those feelings. And I don't think that they have to conflict with analysis at all. Definitely. Um, what do you, what is it? Um, so I guess I kind of want to go more into the subjective effects index, which you guys deal with. Um, <laughs> would you be able to give a kind of a synopsis of what you do specifically and relating to the subjective effects index and uh, kind of in layman's terms for people who don't know? Uh, yeah, sure. So I take subjective experiences such as the psychedelic experience or the dissociative experience or any experience that could be considered an altered state of consciousness and I break them down into individual subcomponents. So there are sensory, cognitive, emotional, physiological categories of effects and then there are subcategories within those say visual or tactile effects and within visual there might be visual distortions, visual hallucinations, uh, geometry and then I break those down further into individual labels and uh, I attach to those labels formalized phenomenological descriptions often with detailed leveling systems and general analysis. There's actually a large community around the I guess the visual and auditory side of it called the replications community. It's uh, got a large following on uh, Reddit in which they try to create visual representations of how it looks to trip. I don't think the visual effects are the most important aspect of the psychedelic experience by any means, but it's the it's the easiest and I guess most literally eye-catching aspect of it in terms of con- conveying. Uh, what got you into the replications? Um, I guess when I was uh, originally writing... Um, my visual components of a psychedelic experience article as a teenager, I just needed a visual medium to showcase different aspects of the experience. So I would collect whatever I can that was already made online. A lot of it would come from visionary art. There's definitely a crossover between psychedelic visionary art and replications. Um, And then a lot of it just didn't exist. So a community over time was formed around trying to convey what it looks like to trip. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a combination of an art form and a phenomenological technology because people are constantly trying to outcompete each other and use different uh, techniques and such to convey the experience. Yeah, definitely. But it's something that I'm sure is just so far beyond what you can see on a computer screen where it's just, it's not, it's not something that it can be represented appropriate or accurately in any real sense. Um, it, it, dep- it depends on what aspect of the experience you're talking about. So like the, the open eye stuff, visual distortions, colors getting brighter, open eye geometry, things like that. I think those genuinely can be conveyed with the current technology we have. When you get to really high level stuff and you're hallucinating things that look four dimensional and could not be captured on a screen, then yeah, that's right. But but I think the technology is closer than you might suspect. Oh, really? Okay. In terms of just conveying the visual aspect of things. Well, obviously, when you're actually going through those experiences, there's so many components that couldn't be captured in video form. Yeah, I'm sure. And then, uh, so what is your role in the sub, uh, dealing with the subjective effects index? Uh, so I guess with the effect index, um, the original one, 
I've done some editing for the articles and, um, but then the, in terms of the more, the more recent, uh, compilation of effects that Josie's been working on, I've been going through and helping with the, the organization and, uh, like really pinning down of some of these definitions. Um, do you think I could talk about time distortions a little bit? Yeah, go for it. Cool. So, uh, I guess to give you an idea of what kinds of things we're talking about in terms of there being effects and then there being subcomponents of those effects is I think time distortions tends to be a really good one because there's there's two large categories in that and that is uh, one is one's perception of chronology so something that was long ago might feel like it was yesterday's this morning might feel like it was last week that's things that we normally experience but they can also be further induced by altered states of consciousness and then there's the more moment to moment feeling like, uh, you know, an hour has passed and you look at your clock and it's been 15 minutes, that sort of thing, those, those kinds of time dilations. And so trying to find discrete terms for all of these things is, has been a real challenge because uh, I guess like time sense is not just a single thing. It's to do with, with memory. Uh, a lot of different substances can affect memory. And um, so it's, it's really just a conglomeration of different things that the brains are doing that create these effects. And so um, I stumbled across a term chronoception, which I've used as the, the term for the moment to moment time passing, like your just internal sense for time passing. And then there's the more uh, like temporal distortions of uh, it seeming like uh, I guess like like time has has passed differently, or the, the atemporality, which is a feeling of being outside of time. Um, but yeah, it can it's broken down into a lot of different things. Just to give you a general idea of that sort of thing. Yeah, no, totally. That I mean, there's so much to deal with. I mean, when you're when you're talking about trying to put an objective, um, uh, like an objective analysis on a subjective experience, there's so there's there's so much difficulty with that. What what would you f- say is like the hardest? or at least um, one of the more difficult um, problems you've come into trying to trying to capture a subjective experience. Is it the essence mm. amplification that we've been uh, trying to pin down lately? Yeah, that one's really hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess there's, like, if, if I'm going to use that example, I was actually uh, speaking to, to an expert about it this morning uh, to try to figure out how to do this. But uh, there's this term called rasa. I believe it's used in... Sanskrit. I, th- I believe it's like Sanskrit, like like art analysis or art uh, um, appreciation. That's I'm probably that's probably not the the right thought. But anyway, so I'm going to try to explain it. Um, so like a, an aesthetics term, or yes, it is related it's tied to aesthetics. Into that. Yeah. yeah. So basically, um, it's the feeling that you get about an item, say. So you can look at a, a conglomeration of something's components and or different different traits and then get get a feeling about it. Like uh, an example that's used is um, rocks can be used in like Zen gardening kinds of things. And there's a sort of evocative feeling of the coolness and hardness and steadiness. And but basically to, to have this increased tendency toward rasa is to see things and get a very strong, like visceral feeling of understanding what they are in, in some kind of level that's beyond just uh, standard 
uh, verbal ideas or emotions exactly. It's just, it's just like a a feeling of of what that thing is. Yeah, it's it's really hard to explain because it's uh, feeling the essence of something beyond the words that would you would use to describe it, and then trying to describe what that experience is using words. Yeah, so an example that I used to try to pin this down uh, with the expert I was talking to today is that when it comes to increased music appreciation, which is something that is a common effect of, mo- of several compounds, um, that I kind of think of it as there being two general components of that, which is an increased tendency to listen to the details of the music and kind of uh, be taking in all the different components and be really more actively listening to it. And then there's an increased tendency to get a lot of emotion from the music, to be emotionally affected by it. And this kind of like being emotionally affected by it is dissimilar from Rasa in that the music kind of creates an emotion inside of you, whereas Rasa is you having a feeling about something else, but it doesn't become your own feeling. Where did you stumble upon this term, Rasa? Uh, the, the the experts, like someone who works yeah. at uh, Tom, Tom Ray. He yeah. was a he was a close real life friend of uh, Alex Shulgin, he, who's a guy who invented hundreds of different uh, psychedelic compounds. Um, he's considered historically significant within the uh, psychedelic subculture, and uh, he has his own general classification system for altered states of consciousness that part of my job has been translating and integrating into this new version of the subjective effect index I'm developing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I'm, I've been increasingly involved in that as well, yeah. so, uh, which is why I guess I was talking to him about it. But um, yeah, it is something that I guess like has existed as a term or as an idea in other cultures, but not really in our culture. And we're still trying to figure out what kind of term we might use for this effect. We thought about using the term Rasa, but... Um, it's not English is one y- thing. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of borrowed words. I like, guess that's so. Not, yeah. <laughs> that's not like inherently a right. problem. I, I, just, I prefer them to be immediately understandable based on the, the well, title itself. But it's not always an option, unfortunately. Yeah, that's kind of why we wouldn't do that. Like, mm-hmm. we, why we might not be able to do that as well with, with this particular term. Because if we do, like, we, we thought of several... Like examples of ways that we might describe it. And pretty much every single one, if people just looked at the term and didn't read the definition, they would come at it, they'd come away from it with a different idea than what we're actually trying to get across. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's like you run across that problem in philosophy where a bunch of philosophers are trying to come up with their own jargon and nobody knows what they're actually talking mm-hmm. about. Um, how far back does the literature go um, uh, when you're, when you were talking about like categorizing uh, the effects of psychedelic experiences? Um, so it goes back to about, the, the, the 60s. Um, I've been working on this project for the last year or so where I've been doing a large-scale literature review of all other altered state of consciousness classification systems in existence, of which there are many of varying degrees of quality, I suppose. Um, the the original one that I'm aware of is probably the MEQ, which is the Mystical Experience Questionnaire, which was a factor analysis validated psychometric scale for measuring and describing people's mystical and religious experiences. It's also Timothy Leary's Seven Levels of the Psychedelic Experience, which he uh, put in one of his books in the 1960s. There's been a number of different psychometric scales over the years and more informal projects like books and online resources that attempt to do a similar thing from different directions. Uh, The Subjective Effect Index on effectindex.com is the most comprehensive, but even that is not nearly 
as uh, nuanced and in-depth as it truly needs to be. This new version I'm working on within the company is eventually going to be fully public. And uh, the idea for that is it's going to serve as a universal terminology set for both researchers and average people to have the language to discuss, describe, and study altered states of consciousness. Something analogous to that of the DSM, regardless of your thoughts on the DSM? Uh, Yeah, that is a question I had. Like, how does this differentiate from the DSM? Um, uh, Maybe the DSM being, uh, what is it, the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual? of Mm -hmm. disorders um Um, it's definitely analogous in a lot of ways uh i think the biggest difference is more just the the point of focus we're talking about drug-induced altered states of consciousness and the dsm is talking about mental illness and um categorizing symptoms for professionals to diagnose them it's it's pretty analogous but they're they're also quite different There's, there's a lot of crossover Cool. Like there, there is a classification system of altered states of consciousness, kind of within the within the DSM that I have integrated into this new version of the subjective effects index. And then to clarify, um, I believe there is some uh, literature that's been found that there have been some some attempts to describe some aspects of altered states of consciousness from indigenous cultures that have been using um, psychedelic uh, medicines or or rituals for for a very long time. It's just. It, talking about the ones that are in the more uh, uh, that have gone through a more scientific um, approach is what Josie was talking about. Okay. I mean, how, so how, how far, I mean, when we were talking about like psychedelics and like um, um, the experiences that one can have on them, how, I mean, I think from our perspective, we, we take it from like a Western view, how, how much of like um, Eastern philosophy or like um, different types of uh, um Rituals throughout the world, do you take into account to, to start to like try to classify these things? Um, I think that it's not an area of expertise for us necessarily. Um, we are definitely aware of it, but um, mm-hmm. at least to, to, to some level. Um, but we aren't really attempting to be bringing in a lot of, uh, I guess with the, the nature of this project, we're trying to make it as as usable for people in in this culture as possible, and um, so I guess in in that way, it's not really the the right place to be integrating a lot from from other other cultures necessarily, at least d- directly into it. Though we want it to be usable to uh, to help communicate about those things to people in our culture. Definitely. I mean, yeah, you mean you're taking a much more scientific approach to everything here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what is your background in in um, uh, are you, what are each of your backgrounds in, in the, uh, I guess, uh, like scientific analysis? Um, so I actually, I have a degree in, um, uh, professional writing and rhetoric, uh, minor in business. And after kind of waffling through some different stuff for a while, I did get a job as a research administrator at Colorado state university. And it ended up just being not the right fit for me professionally, but, um, it's like I've definitely like interested in in research, and I've uh, like I did some original research that was cited in some some academic journals for my undergraduate thesis. But um, it's just something of interest for me, and I have uh, a lot of interest in the methodology and really analyzing um, how we we find knowledge and how we test knowledge and how we get closer to a full understanding of things. Yeah, uh, I, I'm very much an outsider to traditional academia. Uh, I 
went to a pretty terrible secondary school in southeast England. It was uh, so bad that they got the government involved and knocked it down the year after I left. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to university after college, but I was so passionate about documenting and classifying the subjective effects of psychedelics at that age already that I realized that there was no relevant field that I could study. I guess I could have gone into psychopharmacology or neuroscience, but even then it felt more tangential. So I spent the last decade just working entry-level jobs while running my personal online uh, passion projects, founded a few prominent websites such as uh, Psychonaut Wiki and the Subjective Effect Index Project. And eventually, once uh, psychedelic medicine became capitalism approved, I just promptly got snapped up by a company. Yeah, yeah. I definitely feel for you, uh, or I guess I, I, I relate to you on that aspect because I, I mean, I have no degree in philosophy. I have no um, uh, specific uh, training in, in academia or anything like that, but it's something that I feel like you can, it's not, not, it's not necessarily, um, especially with the work that you guys do and, and philosophy as well, it's not necessarily something that um, needs to be uh, taken um, through like a proper university. Um mm-hmm. Or, or within a within a specific range of academia, just because um, these are these are things that are applicable in other ways outside of the traditional route of exploring ideas and, and analyzing uh, analyzing these these sorts of experiences. Um, so, yeah, definitely, that's that's it. Seems, um, seems like you guys are doing very interesting work here. Um, do you guys? Um, you mentioned in a conversation you had with a uh, destiny, the other, like he's an online, um, oh, yeah. uh, personality. Um, you don't necessarily have a favorite psychedelic, but rather ones that you kind of, um, have favored toward or like a certain predilection towards with pertaining to certain experiences that you would <laughs> like to, uh, uh, feel or what is, can you kind of dive into that a little bit? Um, sure. I suppose it depends on the context. If I want to have a, an extremely deep, spiritual and impactful experience ayahuasca would be my favorite uh if i want to go on a hike through nature lsd would be my favorite if i want to have fun at a party um i suppose i would go for 2cb for stuff like sex i would choose 4ho mipt uh for, for a short but intense trip i would choose dmt it really just depends on the situation and there's yeah. such a variety of different experiences available within just the realm of psychedelics not even including the different categories of hallucinogen that it's impossible for me to pick a favorite yeah and uh you've mentioned you've taken over 200 psychedelics i've taken over 200 different psychoactive compounds uh mostly psychedelics okay and then how many have you taken emily um oh, geez, oh. Have we even counted I, I don't think we have um let's see I, I think I think I may have tried a good well if we're talking about specifically psychedelics or have, just states of or like altered there's substances that take you into I some mean, altered states of consciousness like I've tried at least 10 right I'd say you've tried about two dozen maybe oh, but yeah. I'm not sure about two dozen psychedelics at least I've dyscalculia but that's oh, okay. the number that's coming to my mind yeah <laughs> it's, I think it's been more than 10 in the relatively short period of time I've been exploring yeah you've been trying yeah. a lot of different obscure yeah. psychedelic and hallucinogenic compounds yeah i mean i think a lot of people get kind of um um they get kind of fixated on the traditional psychedelics like lsd psilocybin ayahuasca uh, dmt stuff like in the mainstream media but um where do you where do you even go about like exploring different types of psychedelics like i like what how did how did you kind of get into like the more niche um, uh, psychedelic i was very 
fortunate in that I got into drug use at a very specific point in history in the United Kingdom uh, when we had the best and most well-developed research chemical market in the world. You could order all sorts of obscure research chemicals and have them delivered to your door next day for ridiculously cheap on the clear market for many years until they implemented the uh, psychoactive substance ban in trying to remember when that was. I think it was around 2016 or something. And uh, because of that, I was exposed to an incredibly wide variety of psychoactive substances. And since I became a prominent online content creator or writer within the psychonaut subculture, I just developed the connections I needed to have access to those sorts of things uh, quite readily. Awesome, cool. And then, what has your been ex- experience been with like the more niche psychedelics? Um, so, I mean, it, it's basically just like through through Josie. Um, I guess I've you know, it, so this has all been very exciting for me, kind of like getting into this whole world. And uh, when I have opportunity to try something that sounds interesting, I, I often go for it. Uh, I will say that I have like kind of a a, a sort of uh, kind of blurb that I like to tell people when it comes to trying psychedelics. And that is to go slow, basically. Um, it seems like I, I, I know personally and am personally a person who has an unusual level of uh, reaction to psychedelics. There's a lot of variation in how people react and what kinds of things are good or, or anxiety inducing and really like to sensitivity to dose. Uh, like I know somebody who is like a man who's taller than me, who is uh, very easily affected by psychedelics. And I happen to have a very high tolerance just naturally. And uh, so if he and I took the same amount of something, like he would be in another world while I would be just like chilling. <laughs> and yeah. so I think like if, if you don't already know where you fall in all of that, it's really best to to start slow and figure out where like how, what your reaction is to a specific compound and only go go forward from there because um, people can have very negative experiences on psychedelics when they are kind of just thrill-seeking inside their own brain without really taking into consideration uh, how to do it safely and in a way that's beneficial for them. Definitely, yeah. I mean, that um, resonates with me because I'm somebody, somebody that is um, immensely um, sensitive to just cannabis. I mean, I'll take one hit of like a joint and I'll be high. So, um, it's, a, and that's part of my hesitation doing psychedelics is, um, mm-hmm. because I, I know how, um, susceptible I, I can be to, to substances. Um, it's not that I'll, I, I'm putting it off the table completely that I would never try psychedelics. Um, but I've been um, kind of doing a lot of research and just kind of my own, um, just through my own autodidacticism, I, I've, um, uh, been studying psychedelics for like two years, just on my own, just kind of interest, you know, online or whatever. Uh, but I've never actually taken that leap to to go and uh, take one myself. Um, but you, you, Emily, you said your first psychedelic experience was in 2021. Uh, well, it was back when I was like 18. Well, oh, I guess 18, like um, yes, and then there was like a long gap until I tried them again. Okay, sweet. And then, so what? What was your first psychedelic experience like? Uh, psilocybin. Okay, it was on psilocybin. Yeah. Okay, and then how did how did that? Um, and then I guess, how does that differ from, um, the w- ones you've had recently? Um, oh, let's see. I guess like, um, ones that are similar to psilocybin are in some ways the ones I do the most. I'm definitely a tryptamine person personally. Um, 
and like you know, psilocybin, it's very it's really exciting that it's being decriminalized here in Colorado so that people can uh, more more easily and safely be exploring it. Um, I'd say that the, the difference for things, I mean, like LSD is definitely different. Um, so far, the only phenethylamine that I've tried has been 2CB. Um, it's, it's different. Um, I don't know. Like I have kind of abnormal reactions to a lot of things when it comes to, to these substances. Um, when it comes to like 2CB, for example, I found that it really distorted my proprioception. So I would be like, kind of like confused about what the position of my body is. Like I didn't have like an automatic sense for it. Okay. Yeah. And, um, let's see, I think honestly, well, like there's a lot of things I, I'd want to be exploring more. Like, I guess like DMT is weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's definitely a lot different from psilocybin. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to just kind of more abstractly think about like what is different about these different things. I guess like there's definitely... Uh, I think vibe differences are are one of the most like important things. And then there's also definitely differences in uh, the specific effects that you get. Um, for Homet is in some ways kind of similar to psilocybin, but I find that it has more um, more more premium visuals, especially closed eye visuals. Mm-hmm, premium visuals. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I mean that that. So that kind of brings me to the question, is there any psychedelics you wouldn't take? I mean, so I know, I know in your recent video, or your, you, did, you guys released a couple of weeks ago, uh, the delirium replication video. Oh, yes. Um, and then in, in the description of that, you said basically to avoid this at all cost. Um, yeah, do not do delirium. It's- how does that differ from psychedelics? And then what, what exactly um, makes you say that you shouldn't be taking these things? Um, so delirium are essentially... Uh, what a not very well-informed conservative boomer might imagine when they think of psychedelics. Uh, they make you feel incredibly ill physically. You often cannot swallow. You often desperately need to pee, but it feels like your urethra is blocked with concrete. Um, people hallucinate a lot of uh, spiders and uh, shadow people, and it induces, well, I guess, a state of delirium in that there are solid external hallucinations of things in your environment that you immediately take to be real in much the same way that people accept the plots of their dreams regardless of how absurd they are. So they're very dangerous and also bad for you physically. Yeah, no, that sounds sounds pretty rough. (laughs) Yeah, there's no therapeutic value to them. They're more of a a curiosity. Yeah. How many delirians have you taken? I've done a lot of diphenhydramine or... Benadryl. Um, I would combine it with uh, DXM, a dissociative, because if you combine it with um, a dissociative anesthetic, you can offset the physical side effects. So you can experience the delirium without feeling horribly ill. And you might not want to take that out. We don't want to give kids <laughs> advice because those oh, yeah. are both available like over the counter, yeah. right? Yeah. And out of all of the compounds I have tried, <clears throat> No, you're totally good. Uh, out of all of the compounds I've tried, uh, delirients are the only ones that have caused me permanent physical harm. Uh, so they, they screwed up my bladder for a number of years, and it took a long time to recover. And it did the exact same thing to my friend as well d- during those ongoing experiments. And you're still not completely recovered. Nope. You're doing a lot better, but... Like 11 yeah. years now? Yeah, in the time that I've known you, it's gotten better. I can only imagine how bad it was initially. It was very bad. for uh, 11 for... years, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I was doing it all 
in the name of science. I was trying to write an article documenting the subjective effect profile of delirance. Um, and the problem was we kept forgetting what happened during the trip. So we'd have to try again and yeah. take notes and such. It wasn't absolutely wasn't worth it. Yeah. yeah. So you, you've taken, <laughs> you've taken an immense amount of, of, of different compounds. Um, what was it that drew you to like, what was it about psychedelics, altered states of consciousness that is such an allure for you? I mean, many people take psychedelics, they take um, different types of substances and they don't become um, somebody that, that wants to be entering these worlds uh, or these, these states of consciousness um, uh, regularly. Um, so what is it exactly that really drew you to, to, to be doing this um, as much as you do do? Um, so I don't actually trip that much these days, just to throw that out there. Yeah. Although I, I did go for a several year period of tripping essentially every single chance that I got every, every weekend, multiple times a week sometimes. Went for a period where I did ayahuasca every day for multiple weeks in a row. Um, and don't, don't I, do that. Yeah, don't, 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 I, I'm, not, I'm not advocating this sort of behavior. I'm just, this is what I've done. Uh, so I, I suppose when I initially discovered psychedelics while I was young, I immediately realized that they are something of profound and incredible historical significance and that they could have a deeply positive influence on humanity as a species. And it was just driving me crazy that I had discovered these things and nobody else was nobody else was talking about it. There was very little information on them. Nobody had documented the states that they induced to any satisfactory degree. And uh, I just realized that that was the thing that I could do with my life that would make the most difference. So it became an immediate obsession and that just never died down. Yeah. Um, and then what is it for you that is the actual allure to psychedelic experiences? Hmm. So I, I think for me, it's definitely, if I wasn't so quickly involved in this world of trying to understand and articulate things about it, I'm not sure that I would be wanting to explore quite as intensely as I am now. Um, but it is something that I find really enjoyable and therapeutic. And uh, like for, for me, I have, again, like unusual reactions to some things, but things like uh, psilocybin or 4-ACO-DMT, um, I find really encouraging to me. Like the, the, the those kinds of, of substances really encourage my brain into a very positive, optimistic and uh, motivated sense. And it's not something that I feel like is necessary for like therapeutic purposes for me to do that frequently. When I first did try psilocybin as a teenager, my kind of thought was I wanted to do it like sometime somewhere between twice a year to every other, every other year is I was just like, I just want to be doing it at least that frequently for the rest of my life was kind of the thought I had as soon as I tried it. Um, but for the, the amount that, uh, I guess like I'm not tripping all the time by any means. Yeah. We don't trip nah. as much as people probably assume. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I guess that's kind of relative though to like different <laughs> people. I mean, like for me, like I smoke we cannabis like once or twice a, a month. Mm-hmm. And so like, I don't know if that's high or low com- relative to other people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a couple of weeks since I've tripped at this point. It's been at least a month, I think. I think it's been at least a month for me as well. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So not, yeah, it's not like um, mm-hmm. 18 year old high school kids just like trying to do Molly on the weekends every weekend. Uh, yeah. yeah. And that, also that, don't do that. Yeah, no. <laughs> that that, that was me at a point in my life, but yeah. I, I honestly yeah. feel like I've explored every category of psychoactive substances, um, of psychoactive substance to their fullest. I, when I take a psychedelic now, I don't feel that I experience anything that I haven't seen before. It's still 
beneficial from a therapeutic standpoint to do it occasionally. And it's something I can enjoy doing with other people, but I don't feel compelled to do it in an explorative way anymore because I feel like I've seen it all. That's an interesting point. Like so you, you feel as if you've kind of maxed out, so to speak, in the in terms of the the, the experiences that you could have. Not necessarily the that experience itself, but in terms of what types of experience may be be, be felt on psychedelics. Yeah, um, Alan Watts had this quote where he says, "When you get the message, hang up the phone," and that's something that gets stated by my subconscious brain quite loudly when I'm, when I'm tripping on a regular basis and I tend to dial it back. I've learned a lot from psychedelics and now what I need to do is put that into practice in the real world via my subjective effect documentation projects. So we're constantly returning to those states um, has diminishing returns. It took a long point, a long time to get to the point where it was diminishing returns, but I very much passed that point, I think several years ago. Okay. Wow. That's interesting. Um, and you know, it affects everyone differently. So people can get there sooner or later, um, just kind of depending on your, your, um, your tolerance and like what, what you kind of need for yourself. But, um, um, what is it, what would you guys define? Um, I guess I should ask Emily first and then you can respond, Josie. What, mm-hmm. what is it you would define consciousness as? Hmm. So I guess for me, I would think of it more as, uh, I guess, a complex set of mental processes that allow people to um, experience moments in time and themselves. I think I'll just start there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I don't have a super concrete definition of consciousness that I could argue in a philosophy debate or anything, but my general intuition is that consciousness exists on a spectrum and is pretty synonymous with awareness, awareness being able to receive input and respond to it. I think everything is conscious on some level, but to varying degrees of complexity. Um, everything from, I don't know, a single-celled organism that can receive sensory input or a plant all the way up to human beings or computers or, or whatever. Okay, I was yeah. about to wonder if you thought that books were conscious. Okay. I think that books are because conscious. Because you said everything. I mean, so this, okay, now I understand that you're talking about like... Yeah, I mean, do, like, yeah. do I think an atom is conscious? I mean, maybe it's on the consciousness spectrum. I, I guess I... Uh, yeah. yeah, I, yeah it's, I, it's, I it's, hard, it's hard to say, really. Yeah, I wasn't sure what you meant by everything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I meant everything. Oh, the philosophical term panpsychism is is the, the the reference to what you just made. Um, yeah, no, it's it is interesting. I mean, when when we think about like what consciousness is, how is it more of like um, um, uh, like our minds are like more of an antenna to consciousness, and consciousness is just always existing, um, or or is it um, something that is is built based on um, I guess complexity within us within an organism? Um, but there are, there are difficult. Uh, there are difficulties that come with the, each way of thinking about it. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that I've, you know, um, expect any of you to answer. It's, it's mm-hmm. something that is, is uh, uh-huh. being, being thought of and uh, researched, but um, uh, I mean, altered states of consciousness, it's just kind of, um, do, do you kind of view this baseline, I guess, what would you describe like this uh, sort of baseline reality "Quote unquote," like you that you that we kind of experience collectively as uh, in different from um, uh, a psychedelic experience compared to a psychedelic experience. Do you guys differentiate baseline baseline uh, experience from a psychedelic experience? Or yeah, I guess like um, 
We would consider the the normal like the normal consciousness to be uh like no- normal life or mundane life or mm-hmm. everyday sobriety or consensus reality consensus is a term reality, I see thrown yeah. around a lot, which I quite like. Consensus reality, yeah, that seems like a that seems like a pretty apt uh, description of it, just because it's not anything different. It was just kind of agreed upon that this is kind of the normative way of operating. Yeah, and it's obviously the experience of that is different for everyone to varying degrees. Although there is very much a bell curve that people tend to cluster around. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, um, what, um, so if somebody wants to get to start like, um, understanding psychedelics more, um, like somebody from my perspective has never taken it. Um, and we kind of touched upon it, um, just like being careful how you do it. And, and you, you, you spoke to that earlier, Emily. Um, what is some, uh, Josie, what is, what is, what are some guidelines you would set forth for anybody that has never, or has taken a psychedelic experience or like hasn't had any, any, um, real experience with psychedelics. What are, what are some of the guidelines you would set for people? So I'd say just don't jump into the deep end before you can swim, start with a low dose and work your way up across many different trips incrementally as you feel comfortable. Uh, I would actually recommend um, DMT as a good starter psychedelic because it has a dosage range like any other and the duration is five to 10 minutes. So if you can carefully measure out a threshold dosage, it allows you to experience a moderate psilocybin trip or the equivalent of for only five to 10 minutes, which I think is much easier for people to handle rather than being thrust into a trip that is going to last several hours, whether they like it or not. Yeah. Um, what is, yeah, I mean, it's, I think, I think, um, I mean, I think there's so much, uh, I mean, I, somebody like myself who, who considers psychedelics, um, just immensely profound and, and taken to be taken seriously. Um, because, um, altering your consciousness is not a, it's not a light thing to do and it can profoundly change who you are, um, and, and kind of lead you on different directions and different paths that you wouldn't have otherwise taken. Um, so, I mean, you know, maybe it's to my, maybe my own uh, indecisiveness is something that um, has really kind of led me to, to kind of not take it yet or take any substance like that yet. Um, but um, what do you think is kind of, if somebody is wavering on the, on the, the border of, should I take one or should I not? Um, what would you say to, to somebody in that sort of position? Um, I guess my first question would be, do they have a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia? And if they do, maybe tread with incredible caution. But if they don't and they're emotionally stable, I'd honestly tell them to just go for it. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, but to go for it with, with care in terms of dosage. And yeah. Yeah, 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 so yeah, I mean, you should yeah. be careful, but it's not... Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Okay. Yeah. I think you should be careful, but I, I don't think it needs to be treated uh, like this insane thing that could potentially ruin your life to quite that extent. Um, just if you, if you start low, the, the, the risks are very mild. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't encourage them to jump into the deep end and have an ego death breakthrough experience, but uh, just taking a threshold dose of psilocybin or DMT isn't, I don't think is going to cause any problems. And from there they can just see how they feel about it and act accordingly. Yeah. Like there are definitely people who have been harmed through use of psychedelics 
Um, I will say that a lot of the stories in, in mainstream things about that, a lot of them are through combinations of substances often that include opiates, uh, which are much more dangerous, um, typically speaking. But uh, when it comes to dangers from the psychedelics themselves, it is definitely real. Like it, it's not like your, your brain isn't just a toy. These substances aren't just toys. But the the risk of if you are doing it in a safe and reasonable manner, I'd say is, is kind of... Uh, is it not a very similar situation, but I would kind of compare it to the risk of somebody who's in, you know, good mental health and say they try alcohol for the first time and quickly become addicted to it. They, you know, they could have this, this, this capacity to be prone to addiction and for, for them, alcohol might be a bad thing. And of course it's not a very healthy thing regardless, but for most people, that's not going to be their experience. Yeah, no, yeah. I- I agree. Um, I mean, as somebody, I guess it's, it's, it depends on the substance, you know, I'm, I'm sure. Um, and everyone has a certain predilection towards certain substances. So, um, you know, like someone like myself who has a family history of alcoholism, um, you know, it's, it's not so I don't drink, I don't drink at all. Um, not that I haven't drank in before excessively, but it's not something that I, I find myself feeling any, any good off of. So I eventually had to stop doing it. Um, but it didn't ruin me as a person. Um, yeah, so will, like psychedelics, the, the risk of addiction is intensely low in part because they do tend to develop a, a nigh instant tolerance. Like you can't just do them frequently. Yeah. That, that'll also punish you if, yeah. you if you're using them too frequently yeah, they'll, they'll and they'll tell you exactly you. why they're punishing you as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, um, I used to live in Oregon, uh, Portland, Oregon, um, mm-hmm. and I went to a psychedelic con- conference there, um, and they spoke heavily to the point of reintegration after a psychedelic experience. Um, what is, what is, what are your thoughts on reintegration? Like how, what is like kind of the, um, guidelines for reintegrate, re- reintegrating yourself from, from the experiences and from the, uh, the, um, kind of what you, what you can undergo during one of these processes? Um, I, I guess I would recommend just not having another psychedelic experience until you feel that you have processed the previous experience. I think integration does kind of happen naturally to some extent. I, I think writing trip reports is a, is a really good way to sort of process the experience that you went through, but I don't think there's a standardized way that you can integrate an experience that you had that would work for everybody yeah. Yeah. I think uh practicing deliberately deliberate mindfulness in uh you know remembering the trip or writing a trip report can definitely be very useful for integration and that I think that trying to do some like active integration work is pretty important if you're looking for specific therapeutic outcomes. Um I think that for a lot of experiences that people have like people can have very strong intense experiences both good and bad and just in general because of the risk averse nature of our brains we tend to very easily integrate negative experiences because we want to be more defensive in the future whereas good experiences can be much easier to uh, fall out of our brains if we don't hold on to them Um, and so I I think that yeah trying to especially for for very good trips um, and like a good trip is, is a whole kind of world to, to get into like how people think of that and what a, a bad trip is but um for for deeply meaningful experiences like that i think because of the way that psychedelics do mess with our memory um it can be especially important to very deliberately integrate 
Yeah. Well, would you be able to speak more on and that, that? That is a question that I have thought about immensely. Was um, the the idea between a, a a bad quote unquote bad trip or a good trip? I know a lot of people refer to it as like difficult trips or challenging trips. Mm-hmm. Um, what is what is your your take on that? Uh, my basic take on it is that um, I would only really call a bad trip one where someone is. Um, completely overwhelmed with the experience and is unable to just experience it as it comes, um, where they're not really processing anything in particular. They are just being traumatized. That's what I would call a bad trip. It's not necessarily very common. Some people are much more prone to it than others, but um, it's something that definitely can happen. Um, But I would consider a challenging trip. I had one, actually the last trip that I had was, was, was one of these um, to be one where, uh, there might be, oh, actually also a bad trip can be one where physical side effects completely ruin the experience. I, oh, I've had that definitely. before. Ugh. Completely ruins it. <laughs> but, um, so, but the most recent trip I had that was definitely on the challenging side was, um, something where I was in a state where I wasn't able to process things cognitively or analytically the same way I normally would but I found myself in a way that I, I perceived afterwards as basically seeing myself judging myself in my life and just holding myself back in that kind of way. And so that was, that was not comfortable. That was not easy, but it was, it was definitely therapeutic in the end, but it was, it was a, a whole experience to get through. And then and good ones are, you know, just having a fun time. The trip to means tell you that you're awesome. And it's like, yeah, I'm awesome. Yeah. Come to a bunch of positive realizations. Yeah. Is that how you, <laughs> would you agree with uh, what? I yeah, I, I would agree with that distinction. Uh, I mean, bad trips that I've had are ones that I have slipped into a delusion and started to freak out or panic or have an anxiety attack or something along those lines. And generally speaking, the thing that I am panicking over isn't real. Uh, It's some sort of delusion or an exaggeration. And I'm often in a state where I can't really process the situation that I'm in. And then challenging experiences that I've had are ones where they're heavily centered around processing grief or uh, introspection or regrets, things like that. And those are generally very therapeutic. Um, and then good trips that I've had have either been immensely recreational or um, defined by transpersonal and mystical experiences, such as like states of unity and ego death and uh, profoundly beautiful hallucinations, things like that. Yeah. Are there any experiences that you'd be willing to share or a specific trip that you've had that, that has been, uh, I guess, um, uh, meaningful towards you or like shaped you in any specific way? Yeah. So I guess I have a set of four or five experiences, um, in which I underwent what I would classify as level four unity and interconnectedness, where my sense of self became, attributed to not just my my brain or body or general conception of my identity, but my external environment and the entirety of my internally stored model of reality, which I guess for modern humans is the universe as a whole. And during those experiences, I would have the overwhelmingly profound experience of being the universe experiencing itself through the particular point in space and time that this 
biological organism with its sensory input happens to exist. And those experiences have impacted me more than anything else I've, I've been through. And I've written very few trip reports over the years, but every time I've been through that, I've been through it four times in total. I've, I've written an experience report for that. And I, I think the states of, I refer to it as unity and interconnectedness, but people commonly refer to it as states of non-dualism or oceanic boundlessness are the most profound and impactful aspect of the psychedelic experience in general. And how do you, how do you take those, um, an experience like that? And then, um, what are your, what are your conceptions of what just happened? I mean, after like starting to come down and, and kind of going back to, um, what, you know, what, what is it that you exactly kind of, how do you analyze that for yourself? Hmm. Uh, well, so I think of this, this is an experience that pops up all throughout history and in different philosophies and meditative practices um, and religions and such. So it's not something that just happens on psychedelics. It seems to be all over culture in general. I see references to it even in children's cartoons. But I think that um, a person's sense of self exists on a spectrum between what is felt to be me and what is felt to be differentiated from me. In my day-to-day life, I am uh, very depersonalized. I don't have a sense of self. I feel like an automaton. Uh, I've been depersonalized since I was about 14, so it happened before I started using psychoactive substances. But a level above that, people typically more generally have a sense of self that's attributed to their thought stream or their brain or their body or a general conception of their identity. And I think you can modulate which concepts within your reality model have a sense of self as opposed to a sense of not self attributed to them. And as you go further up the spectrum, it could be your immediately, um, your immediate external environment. So you could feel that you are, say, the room experiencing itself, that there's no distinction between you and uh, what you are taking in through your senses. And above that, it can reach the point where your sense of self becomes attributed to your entire model of reality, which I assume for pre-agricultural humans was probably just a conception of nature or existence or the spirit realm. But for modern humans, their internally stored model of reality seems to be space, the universe, earth, nature, things like that. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, um, the sense of self is something that I, um, am, 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 am analyzing from my own consciousness, my own perspective, because I mean, through, through meditation and through, um, like a mindfulness practice, you, I mean, like that the core of it is realizing that we, there is no real sense of self, like what the, what we refer to as I doesn't actually, is not really there. Um, mm-hmm. so like, how was that for you being like, what was the process like for you, as you mentioned before you were 14, before you kind of disassociated from your sense of self after, and then, and then having, or no longer, no longer feeling that anymore. Um, so at first it was anxiety inducing and disorientating. Uh, I did gain my sense of self back, uh, the age of, I think it was 17 during one very specific LSD experience. I um, stopped being depersonalized and I um, I remember what that was like quite distinctly. I was like, wow, I'm, uh, I'm me. I exist. I'm a conscious agent approaching an external environment and I can use my sense of free will and agency to manipulate the world around me. And it's me doing it instead of a uh, a pre-programmed response to sensory input. So I remember that feeling quite well, but eventually it just sort of faded 
away again. And the only other times I've had a sense of self since that's faded away is when my sense of self has been applied to everything as opposed to a specific thing, i.e. me or Josie, this person. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, um, free will, you bring up the topic of free will. And that's something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, what is, what is your sense of free will and, and, um, how would, how would you define free, free will? Um, and, and how do you experience? Um, um I do not experience the illusion of free will on a day-to-day basis. I know what it's like to experience that illusion. It feels like you do an action and it's you doing it. It's not just, um, an automated response to your external environment. And most people feel that when they do an action or they say a thing, there aren't just words coming out of their mouth in an automated fashion. There's a sense of me doing the thing. I don't have that. I personally believe that free will is an illusion. So I I very much fall in the hard determinist camp. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Emily, what is your experience of free will and, and, and the sense of self that you have? Um, I or do. You do have it. I, I do. Um, yeah, I'm. I guess more more of a, a, a typical experience in that way. Um, I do experience the the illusion of free will, but I do more like cognitively consider it to be an illusion, uh, at least for the most part. Um, I think I have a, a more standard idea of like a a sense of self or a more a more a more common experience of a sense of self. Um. Yeah, just over here being being an individual, though in the uh, wild. Yeah, though I, I I've definitely had the the experience over time, like you know, growing up and forming identity more more intensely, and I know like I've experienced there being certain times of life where it feels like to maintain being me, I must continue to do the things that I do, and uh, as you become more of an adult, you kind of realize that what you are is always going to be changing and that it's better and happier to just let that happen. Yeah. And what would you describe your sense of self as? Uh, can you be a bit more specific? Yeah. So like what is, so you kind of, um, Josie kind of mentioned, like, it's like this sense that, um, I am a person like, uh, behind myself, my, behind my own mind, having control over the physical environment or your mental environment. Do you, do you experience it in that way as well? You said like you, like you kind of, do you experience your sense of self as you are, are the, the, um, the, like I am a person and I mm. do things. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Where do you end though? Where do I end? Yeah. Um, and the environment begin. Uh, to me, it's, it's pretty much just outside the skin. Stan- right. so standard. It yeah. It doesn't translate <laughs> standard. It doesn't translate into the couch or to the moon or the universe, whatever. No. Um, I, I will say that when, uh, that I've had times where I was, uh, I've been especially avid cyclist where I feel like my site, my, where my bicycle is an extension of my body. But aside from that, <laughs> yeah, that's very common, uh, lower end of unity. Okay. And then have you experienced some of like the transpersonal, um, kind of experiences that Josie kind of mentioned? I kind of haven't. <laughs> For the most part, um, I've I've done a little bit, but my my brain doesn't seem to be very automatically trying to do that sort of thing. Um, I haven't necessarily had a ton of crazy intense experiences with things. Um, let's see. I mean, part of it is that I do have a naturally very high tolerance. So to get me to like, uh, to be clear, you don't have to have a certain dosage of anything to specifically have a mystical experience. And if you want, it's chasing a mystical, a mystical experience. It doesn't necessarily help you get it, but 
Um, yeah, I, I haven't really had that much. I have had ego death, um, but mostly in respect to completely messing with my my memory. So I just kind of like, what? You seem to be like that. the ability to recall who you are or what yeah. anything is. Yeah. And when it comes to psychedelics, they seem to affect my memory less so than other than, than they do for other people. So um, through some experimentation, I think I've realized that there is a sort of suspension of self that I experience, but I still remember being me more so than than most people do. Um, there's this like state that I get into with some tryptamines where uh, it's kind of interesting because like my, my voice changes, it becomes higher pitched and like my mannerisms change a lot. Uh, we sometimes compare it to be like, kind of animalistic. And I think when I'm in that sort of thing, there is sort of a suspension of my normal sense of self. Um, it may well be that I've just been socialized to kind of speak in a, in a deeper voice normally, just because that tends to be more respected in our culture. And it could be that that just removes me doing that and me, de- me deliberately changing my voice. And so it just becomes higher. Uh, not really sure about that, but um, yeah, I, I unfortunately don't have that much to say in terms yeah, of yeah, no, I, I just wanted to clarify something, which is I've been through a high level unity experience four times and I've tripped hundreds of times. I remember my friends giving me accounts of these unitive experiences as a teenager and being completely obsessed with uh, Alan Watts and his talks on non-dualism and really just seeking this experience. And I kind of came to the conclusion that the more I sorted out, the less likely it was to occur. Eventually, I sort of gave up and forgot about it. And then eventually, one day it happened. Then it happened, uh, it happened twice in a two-week period. Then it didn't happen again for... I think it was five or six years. And uh, once I'd forgotten about it again, it just, it spontaneously happened. And people seem to have different propensities for unity experiences in particular. Although there's a there's about a dozen different categories of mystical and religious experience uh, that we've categorized. Yeah, I, I remember I watched your, um, the categorization, your tier list of, was it? I don't, I oh, the mystical the, experience yeah. tier yeah, list. Yeah, 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 mystical yeah. experience tier list. That was, that was a fun video. Yeah, yeah, no, it was very interesting to watch. Um, and then I remember you put, you mentioned ego death, and I, I, if I recall correctly, you put it at the bottom of that tier list. I put the term ego death at the bottom okay. of the tier list, not the experience of it. Okay. Because the, the term ego death is a colloquial term that basically has no meaning, and people use it to refer to all sorts of things. I then took the specific subcategories of ego death that we have identified, absent selfhood, um, expanded selfhood, uh, fractured selfhood, and I put those in a higher higher tier yeah okay. to be clear when i said that i've experienced ego death i was talking about absent selfhood yeah um but it is just like the term that people more likely use online mm-hmm. just because they're, they're they're kind of a, a swath of experiences to be held under the umbrella term of ego death is that kind of why you guys yeah it's it's slang um that essentially refers to some sort of disruption in a person's sense of self. So people can use it to describe the state of losing one's sense of self so you can no longer recall who you are, what anything is, often through long-term memory suppression. But then they also use ego death to refer to basically the exact opposite of that, where your sense of self has expanded to include more things, unity, experience. And then they can also use it to referring to refer to breakthroughs or just anything really the, the term is very vague when i use it i mean to refer to absent selfhood and that's how we both use the term absent selfhood okay yeah and then um yeah i mean that that's interesting I, uh, do you know where the etymology of ego death comes from 
I think the earliest example I could find of its use was in Timothy Leary's book, um, something like The Psychedelic Experience, uh, based on the manual of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I, I'm not saying the exact title of the book, but it's that was... It's on the bookshelf. It is, it's on the bookshelf over there somewhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was the earliest account I could find of that term, ego death. Yeah, okay. So it seems like it originated in the 1960s. Yeah, and part of why Josie doesn't like the term is because it's it's very it's a very dramatic term that is uh could be used to fearmonger or to kind of make it seem like like uh a more a more a more mystical deal than it necessarily has to be i guess yeah and people that have been through ego death are often some of the most arrogant egotistical people you'll ever meet in, in your life yeah, they, have, they have the smallest ego you wouldn't understand <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean it's something that like I, i've heard and and uh you know it's a good it gets um it's good for um, you know good video titles and, and and whatnot, but it's um you know it's something that I'm sure is much more intricate and complex than than uh, than kind of just generically spitting out ego death and then um, that's it. Um, so m- many people can leave a psychedelic experience with a kind of conflated sense of how the world works. Um, like you can um, kind of um, think you understand something and then kind of come down from a psychedelic experience and not really um, kind of, I don't know, not really, or trying to understand it, but not yet, not, not necessarily basing it in any sort of uh, fundamental reality. Um, what, how much merit in your opinion do you give to a psychedelic experience as it pertains to understanding or comprehending the underlying reality of existence? Um, it's a mixed bag. So if you come back with an idea that is philosophically justifiable or scientifically justifiable, then I think you've had a genuine insight. If it's largely nonsensical or you have no evidence or reason to be able to argue for it beyond the drugs told you that that was the case, then it's probably, probably not true yeah like part of the nature of psychedelics because it in, in promotes the brain connecting in, in novel ways if someone has existing knowledge or understanding about something then it can help you put together the ideas in ways that can can have like conceptual breakthroughs um that's why uh, i guess i know that there's wasn't there like a mathematician or what the person who who uh discovered like the DNA double helix. I think he had an epiphany on psychedelics. Yeah. Or yeah, so the story or goes. I, I think, well, I think from what I heard, I, I don't think he, he said from what I recall that it was on psychedelics, but he thinks that he had, if he had not been doing LSD that he wouldn't have done it. Yeah. And I think it's because it, it does promote the, the brain to be thinking about things in these more complex and interconnected ways. Um, and then also you can just kind of get a general feeling of something being significant and then you can't remember what it was, or it's nonsensical if you remember it. Um, but you have like this this strong feeling of it being significant. But if you're not able to take the meaning back with you, then you were just you're just having the the induced feeling of significance rather than actually putting something together. Yeah, I think a big part of it too is how grounded a person's reality framework just generally is. If a person is quite skeptical and rational, then I think the insights that they have about reality are much more likely to be within that realm. If a person's very, uh, I'm trying to think of 
how can I be polite here, new, new agey or involved in pseudoscientific ideas, then the insights that they receive from psychedelics are much more likely to be within that realm. So it's often a reflection of how they already view reality. What would you define reality as? What would I define? Uh, I guess that which exists even when you ignore it. I don't know. Or like verifiable. <laughs> I'm thinking just consensus or, reality. Or just consensus just reality. The, the, the world around mm. us. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like things that, that yeah, I guess are, are verifiable that you can use multiple ways to determine if it's real and they all come back with the same result. Yeah. Yeah. The traditional scientific method approach to understanding. Yeah. I mean, of course that's not how I feel about reality on the day to day, but if I'm going to try to have to pin it down, that's maybe what I'd say at least at the mm-hmm. moment. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, those are these are immensely complex um, experiences to try to base in, in, in the idea of what reality is. But I mean, as, as from my perspective, reality is anything that can be experienced at all. So it's like differentiating between things that are experienced and not and things that may not be um, uh, based in any um, replicatable or re- re- replicated or um, um, sort of um, in any sort of replicated way. It, it's difficult because, um, I mean, I guess it's like when I look back on my past, um, you know, there are things that I'll never be able to experience again, yet that was still a part of my reality of something. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't preclude me from saying that wasn't reality, even though I can't experience it again. Yeah, I, I guess for me, the distinction is, the, the starting point of the experience. So a psychedelic experience is a real experience. You had that experience. It's a physical property of this universe because since it, it occurred within a brain, but the starting point wasn't information that was taken from your external environment through your senses. I, I know all experiences are more just a simulation that your brain is rendering internally, but is it rendering that internally uh, based on input that it's gathering from its senses or is it just things that it's hallucinating and generating spontaneously i suppose would be the distinction for me yeah yeah i mean i know like um uh in in a lot of like mainstream culture you kind of get like the for example like the idea of like dmt elves um and like is that is that really something that is coming out of like the dmt uh, substance itself or like just uh kind of the culture of kind of being aware of these elves or these experiences um uh on dmt um, but it's a I bit mean, of both, I think. Yeah, it's a bit of both. Um, and I'm sure, but also kind of, I relate to it in sort of like what I, in my dreams, like if I have conversations with people in my dreams, like are those people real or are they just my mind coming up with people that I'm seemingly talking to in my dreams without me having any sort of control over them? Yeah. I kind of think of the brain as a computer simulation framework that takes concepts from its memory databases and then renders them in a virtual environment. And I think that dreams and hallucination and imagination and even just thinking are all part of that same process rendered in varying degrees of vividness. Yeah, this like uh, this is really kind of skirting onto the the edges of how we can try to define real. Um, and I don't, I don't know. Yeah, There's, that that that's hard. I mean, it's, there's no way that we can know what is real and what isn't real, but we can take a good guess, I think. Yeah. And like, again, Josie and I are both definitely materialist perspective. We do think that our brains are capable of rendering all of these things. And those, those, those are real renderings. 
Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It seems real at least. It seems all real to us. Um, well, it's, it's real as a render. Yeah. 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 It's a real experience. Yeah. It's a real experience. And whether or not it's, um, you know, existing somewhere else in the universe and in, in, in our mind in a vat sort of th- sort of thing, it's still like, we're still, there's something to be experienced. And that's kind of what I define like consciousness as just something that is to be ex- like, whatever we can experience, we're experiencing something like it kind of goes back to like, um, like Descartes, I, I think therefore I am. So it's like, there's something here. That's the only real grasp, graspable thing is that there's something here. Um, I guess kind of along those, those lines there, um, something I think about immensely is, is death, but that's something like, I think that comes through my own sense of self. Um, and how, how, what is, what is Emily, if you want to respond first, like what is your sense of, or w- w- how much, um, reflection do you give to death and what, what do you, um, what do you view death as? Um, so this is, this is a pretty, a pretty uh, deep question for me, I guess. Um, again, I was raised in an intensely religious, uh, culture. Like I really didn't experience people outside of the church to any significant degree until I was around 15. Um, so, and then it was, uh, I was just so, so hungry to experience normal, normal, the normal world and, uh, become able to integrate into culture more. That was something that was very interesting to me. But, um, when it comes to death, it's something that I've thought about a lot. Um, I've watched a lot of ask mortician. Um, there's another YouTube channel where it's somebody who is a hospice nurse who talks about the various things that people experience and undergo toward the end of life. Um, from the one, one, one thing I have had in my experiences with psychedelics and dissociatives is increased acceptance of death. Um, when I'm in some of those experiences, it does kind of feel sometimes like, you know what, like this, that this is an experience that I'm having. And uh, that this, this thing that I'm doing here, you know, it, it could end at any point and you know, that's okay. It will have happened. Just try to make the best of it. Um, and uh, I guess, like, uh, what was your, your question more specifically about death? I just want to make sure. Uh, no, just, it. like, your relationship with death and how you view it. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I do think that the experiences that we have are inside of our, our brains or our bodies, and that once the, the brain or body is no longer doing that, that we no longer exist. I, I, I don't believe in an afterlife or anything like that at this point. I'm not saying that I know it's not the case, but I, I, don't, I don't believe in it personally. Totally, Jesse. What, what would you? Um, okay, so uh, I guess I've experienced a statistically abnormal amount of uh, death for someone my age in this part of history. Um, I it's something I think about a lot. I don't believe that there is an afterlife or anything like that. Uh, there has been this sort of metaphysical message that psychedelics have given me um, in regards to a sort of materialist conception of an afterlife over the years. I don't know for sure that it's true, but I suspect it's philosophically justifiable to at least some extent. And um, so often when I'm going through high-level unity or ego death experiences, I get the profound sensation that the passage of time is an illusion and that all time frames throughout the history of the universe, past, present, and future, exist simultaneously and eternally within the time frame that they occurred. And the reason that we experience time in the way that we do is because cause and effect is going in a particular direction. 
Um, this is something that I don't claim to understand quantum physics or physics in general, and I think a lot of people that do are full of shit. Um, but it's it's an idea that I see popping up in uh, the modern scientific understanding of time and physics a lot. So even Stephen Hawking spoke about it quite a lot. And within philosophy, there's this idea of eternalism or the growing box theory of the universe. The... Uh, Time is the fourth dimension and it has a sort of physical direction and the events that occurred um, in the past or in the future are on a different physical part of a map. And even though we are not there anymore, it's still over there. We're just not there anymore. So psychedelics give me the feeling and the message that although my life does not expand across all time frames, it started at a certain point and it ended at a certain point, that it will, for better or worse, continue to occur eternally within the time frames that it happened. And for me, I don't know for sure if that's true, but I do find it quite comforting. There's a lot to respond to that. Um, it, in that sort of framework, do you, do you think that death even exists? Yeah. Yeah. Um, death would be the point at which I stop continuing into future time frames. Okay. okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, I guess it's something I can't really conceptualize in my head just without having undergone sort of a similar experience like that. Um, I can maybe try to define it if you want. Yeah, please. Yeah. So basically everything that happens um, did happen in the past. And it's not a a moment of time that we can go back to, but it did happen. And so if you think of the the timeline as a a physical thing that's stretching on, there's like this, this bubble of it or this segment of it in which a person had their life and you can't go back to it. uh, If like when their uh, time, time has ended, they will not be in other parts of the timeline, but the part of the timeline that they they were in um, will have always been part of the story. And to some degree, you can kind of, uh, if you think of it as time always happening just in the past. Okay. Then yeah. you can think of it as like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, always, yeah. It's like well, still, still existing in, in the timeline. Well, yeah. Under sort of, under this sort of the same vein here, what, you know, this is something that I, if you don't have an, if you don't have any uh, um, way of answering, it's totally okay. Um, is there any insight as to what, time is whenever you go on uh, undergoing any sort of psychedelic? Um, I guess through this framework, I sort of view it as another physical direction. So you have the, you have your, your standard three dimensions and then the fourth direction is, is time, the, the passage of time. Uh, what, one way that this idea of eternalism is often conveyed is, is called the growing cube theory of the universe or the growing box theory of the universe. So um, each square would be a segment or a time slice and throughout that square would be different points in three-dimensional space. But then it's also growing like a cube in like a physical direction. And that would be the direction of time. I, I'm not sure if I explain that in a way that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's not something I, you know, I expected you guys to have an answer towards. Uh, it's just something I, mm-hmm. it's some of them, you know, I don't know if psychedelics give you any insight into to what time might actually be, but um. Um, I I think it, it definitely changes 
uh, or maybe open someone up to thinking about time in more complex ways because of different ways that it affects your perception of time and chronology, uh, like I mentioned earlier. So I think that maybe it makes people um, have a uh, perhaps an expanded view on time or what it what it is to experience time. Um, I haven't personally had beyond that kind of general feeling much like insight on the nature of time personally. Uh, there's another aspect to this that's related to people's perception of death that I've experienced a lot as well, but isn't as directly tied in with time. And that's when people go through these high-level unity experiences, uh, they often come to the conclusion that their separate self is an illusory construct of the human mind, and there is no real distinction between their body or their self um, that they previously only attributed to their body and the world around them. So even when this particular part of the system as a whole disintegrates or stops existing, they will continue to exist through everything else that exists around them. So to put that another way, the brain has created an illusion that uh, that uh, the organism is separate from the universe, but actually that's not true. And when the organi- organism no longer exists, the universe still exists, and that's all that really existed in the first place. Is yeah, more pretty or less much. What you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, kind of switch topics here a little bit. Um, what are some of the barriers that you, uh, as researchers, researchers into this field of psychedelics, um, altered states of consciousness, what are some of the barriers that you're finding the most difficult to get through um, in terms of um, not just like legally, but like um, um, uh, societally? Um, I think that something that I've kind of pushed for more so than, than Josie has is about when it comes to giving specific information about substances and um, the use of them. Like I, I have the, the guidelines that I like to give people, but aside from that, um, in part because of things like YouTube censorship and other uh, like potential fear mongering from people who very deliberately want to misinterpret us and, and make things dangerous. Um, I, I, I am much more wary about giving any specific information about using things like I'm definitely the one who like people will ask on the YouTube channel like hey why aren't you giving dosage ranges for these different experiences and some of that is because again people can have vastly different sensitivities to dose and I don't want to tell people something that I know is going to be very wrong for a a, a not insignificant portion of them but also um, in part because of the way that uh, people fear monger or there could be censorship I don't want to be giving off the impression that we're trying to tell someone how to get high at any point. What we're trying to do is understand the experience and be able to talk about it. That's a great answer. Um, Josie, what, what would what would you say are kind of the hurdles that you're facing undergoing um, psychedelic? I feel like the hurdles are mostly over at this point. And uh, the, the biggest hurdle was that there was no socially acceptable way for a very long time for me to do this professionally. I had to work office jobs and various other things I did not care about to support myself while I was focusing on this project. And that seems to be changing now. Uh, Colorado just decriminalized plant psychedelics and things are becoming capitalism approved. I I work for a biotech research company. Uh, I suppose there are still some cultural limitations in that I have to be very careful what I say on YouTube because I don't want to face the wrath of the algorithm. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's like, um, 
yeah, I, I think the kind of the um, the general consensus is coming coming over a big a big kind of hurdle to to kind of understand what the, what these are and what benefits they might hold for us. Um, and you know, it's not something that that has been an easy process. I mean, it's been decades in the making of us really coming um, to kind of uh, understand them differently. Um, and you know, Colorado where you guys live is such, such a, you know, it's kind of a, a hub for all of this as well as so those like Oregon, um, and, and, you know, like the Netherlands, um, in Europe, but like, there's not that many, there's not that many places, uh, to be studying this in, in the way that you guys do. Um, is that something you guys would find to be true or is that kind of, yeah, it hasn't prevented me from studying them, but it's prevented me from being able to do it as a profession for a long time until recently. Okay. I do kind of think of to some degree, the internet as a location. And I'd say that the internet is becoming, it's it's becoming increasingly common, I think in some ways for people to be talking about psychedelic experiences or um, otherwise be being involved in those kinds of conversations or just showing more awareness in the, in the public square of Reddit or whatever else of, of, of being aware of these things or using these things. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. It had to happen outside of the traditional system yeah. for a long time, which is, I believe, why I got ahead of the curve because documenting and classifying subjective effects was not something that was happening in a corporate or academic setting. So it inevitably ended up being a random person outside of the system. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense with so many other things that, you know, if it's not, mm-hmm. if there's not really like a, um, a straightforward way to kind of go about it, then, you know, the fringe kind of figures out a way. So. Yeah. Uh, Uh, An example of what we're doing in terms of potential YouTube censorship or specifically demonetization is uh, we have this DMT video that we've been working hard on and it's it's partially edited and um, hopefully it'll be out soon. And for the entirety of it, we never say the word DMT. Oh, really? Uh, It's just it's dimethyltryptamine. (laughs) Dimethyltryptamine. Just because DMT has some connotation to it. Um, yeah, we'd be worried about like, we, we've done some, some experimentation with changing the titles of videos to have DMT versus dimethyltryptamine and the automatic filter will demonetize if it has DMT in the title, but will allow dimethyltryptamine, you know, it's, it's the scientific, uh, terminology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's ways to kind of skirt about it. Um, um, cool. Um, and to be clear, we're complying with all of the user guidelines. It's it's for educational purposes, which are carved out as as a, a way that you're still allowed to talk about these things. Yeah, no, totally. Um, please, uh, we're get, kind of getting to the end here. Um, please, uh, for for my audience, um, let in. I would like you to kind of just take this time to kind of uh, tell about anything you guys are doing or whatever you guys want to shout out um, to, to to the research you do and and, and kind of what you're doing in the, in this field. So. Yeah, you go first. <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm out of water, but oh. yeah, I can probably. Uh, yeah, so I'm trying trying to think what, what what am I doing right now. So um, <clears throat> I've been focusing on the YouTube channel a lot since that has been blowing up over the last uh, year or so and has become a decent revenue stream for us and seems to be the most broadly applicable way that I can get the work that I've done um, into the mainstream public consciousness. Uh, so that's been a big focus of mine. Uh, professionally, 
I am creating an academically backed overhaul of the subjective effect index. And what we are doing is we are taking all of those labels based on a large scale literature review, and we are using them to tag sentence fragments of trip reports for psychedelic substances that have been broadly assayed, as in we know the specific receptor affinities that they modulate in the brain, so that we can build up a statistical model that correlates subjective effect outcomes with changes in neurobiology. So that's something I'm working on professionally that I think is going to be very impactful. Uh, We're also working on a project on effectindex.com, which is the current home of the subjective effect index, where we are trying to create a new trip report database slash repository with some slight social media elements allowing people to sign up and submit reports in order to progress the field. And I think that's largely it, other than some smaller projects in which I've been trying to use these new AI art machine learning models to generate accurate replications of um, high-level psychedelic experiences as a technology I'm exploring. But um, that's a bit more informal. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. I, I, I saw those pictures that are coming out that you're putting out on YouTube. Those are those are really cool. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. For, for me, I'm mostly working with Josie on what she's doing. Um, I do have some personal projects that I might do some stuff with in the future, um, like possibly with music or some other creative projects that that I've been uh, like poking at, but I don't really have anything that I can announce in any kind of way. So just basically uh, working with Josie on on the definitions of and categorization of effects for mind state um, and being able to demonstrate the applicability of the the definitions and then also working on the the YouTube channel. Awesome. Super cool. Um, last question. This is unrelated to psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Just big into music. Do you guys have some good music recommendations for, I'm making a playlist of everyone that I interview and then we're going to put them on a big. Oh my God. So. Oh no. I feel like I primarily listen to lo-fi streams. On oh, I love YouTube. lo-fi. I, uh, yeah. I listen to a lot of those, uh, I like music labs. I like dream hop. I like lo-fi girl. And um, that seems to be a significant, percentage of the music that I listen yeah. to. It's just anything that you're into right now, whatever you're into right mm-hmm. now, you know? So, uh, I only like somewhat recently discovered the, I think latest, uh, single by Heilung. Uh, it's H E I L U N G. It's this kind of interesting, uh, music project where they, uh, try to bring in this, uh, sort of historical inspired ritualistic vibe with the, both their music and their presentation um, and their song um, and music video, Ana Ana, I, I've, I've been really enjoying. Cool. Sweet. I guess I can think of two artists I've been listening to lately. Uh, one of them is a rap artist called Ideas and Abilities. He has an album called Newborn, which is all about consciousness and uh, phenomenology and philosophy. And it's, it's, it's really deep. I don't necessarily like rap music usually but his stuff is profound he's he's not even alive anymore which kind of kind of adds to it and then the other artist uh is someone called sewer slut which is just an edm artist that resonates with a lot of people that have had mental health problems i suppose um she, she does a lot of things like sampling controversial audio samples into her music it's 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 good Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate the recommendations. I'm, I'm down for anything that uh, anybody says is good. I'll take a listen to, you know. Um, cool. Awesome. Well, Josie, Emily, thank you so much for being uh, on, on this episode. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, no I'm problem. Sure I talk to you for, for a much longer time, but um, yeah. thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's yeah, been fun. Thank you so much.